you'd open your Bibles up to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to re be reading verses 15 through 23. Once you have that open, if you'd stand for the reading of God's word. Verses 15 of chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all of fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, Make it peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were, in, were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which, was, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. May God bless the reading of his word. All right. If you keep your Bibles open, turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Let's go ahead and read this passage together. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, going through verse 14. It says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. For were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father uh, and the Father is in me, or else believe on the count of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity we have to come humbly before your word. Lord, uh, I pray that we would be encouraged today, that we would uh, learn much from your word today. God, I pray that you would uh, just help us to uh, look to you alone 
for all of our needs. Praise in your name. Amen. So we're jumping into kind of the meat now of Jesus' farewell address. Uh, Jesus spends pretty much 14, 15, 16, and 17 in one big address, one big speech that he's giving to his disciples. In some parts, the, the disciples are speaking with him as well, as we see here. But for the most part, this is Jesus' final teachings before he goes to the cross. This is his farewell address. So imagine, this, as we mentioned last week, imagine if you were standing in front of your family, you knew that there was only hours before your death, what would you tell them? At this point, we, we remember that the, Jesus has been speaking about this lots, right? He's been telling them, hey, I'm going to go to my father. Hey, I'm going to go. Hey, where I'm going, you can't go with me. That would be a little bit discouraging, right? This guy you spent three years with, walking with, going, doing everything together with, and he says, hey, guys, I'm going to leave, and you can't come with me. That might be a little bit discouraging. So here in the beginning of chapter 14 here, Jesus actually gives some really great encouragement. And, uh, and so, so that's kind of, that's kind of the, the temperament we want to have today. We're going to look at this from exactly what Jesus means it to be, from, a, from an aspect of encouragement. We're going to see three main things today. First of all, we're going to see that our home with the Father is guaranteed by Jesus alone. Amen. Second, we're going to see that our knowledge of the Father is, re is revealed through Jesus alone. And third, we're going to see our service to God is because of Jesus alone. So all of this centers around this idea of Jesus alone, right? The title of the sermon, Jesus only, right? There's only one way to heaven. There's only one way to the Father. There's only one way that the Father is revealed, and that is through the Son, so, as we, as we look in our Bibles, we'll, we'll, we'll look through from these aspects. First of all, we'll look at this first point. Our home with the Father is guaranteed by Jesus alone. Uh, again, this is, this, this is meant to be an encouragement. Look how beginning of verse 14, uh, 14, 14, beginning of verse 1, sorry. It says, let not your hearts be troubled. Right? I imagine the disciples would have been very troubled at this point. They were, they were confused. They were uncertain of what Jesus meant by these things he had been telling them. And at some level, they were threatened by references to his imminent departure, right? What's going to happen? What do you mean you're leaving? What does that mean? Does that mean you're going to die? What does that mean for us, right? Are we going to get killed too? What, what does this look like? What does this mean? They're, they're probably very stressed out, very troubled. And think of this. This is so funny. Uh, think about this. What is Jesus? It's not really funny. It's, it's ironic, I guess. Jesus is about to go to his death, Right? One of the most brutal deaths ever recorded, the br most brutal type of death ever recorded in the history of humankind, but the death by crucifixion. One of the most, one of the most uh, intense uh, devices of torture ever created by mankind. And Jesus is about to face that kind of a death, and that kind of a death at the worst possible scale. Wouldn't Jesus be the one that's troubled? But yet, what does he do to his disciples? Hey guys, I know you're stressed out about this. I know you're troubled about this. Let me encourage you. Right? In Jesus' moment of trouble, when he knew he was facing death, he knew, or again, in, in the other Gospels, we'll, we would see that in hours from now, he would be in the garden bleeding or sweating drops of blood, asking for the Lord for this cup to pass from him. And yet, here he is encouraging the disciples. 
He gives them a command that is, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. These are two imperative statements. In other words, they're a command. You must believe in God and you must believe in me. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Uh, in other words, what he's saying is talking about God the Father. Right? You believe in the Father, believe also in, in me. If Jesus invariably speaks the words of God and performs the acts of God, which we'll see in this passage, which we've seen before, that Jesus does the very things the Father wants him to do, and in that way reveals the Father, then should not he be trusted like they might trust the Father? Right? If Jesus is the messenger of God, if he is the very mouthpiece of God, he is the very image of God, as we saw in Colossians 1. If they believe in God, they must also believe in Him. He says, don't be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Put your faith, put your trust in me. And what are they putting their faith and trust in? He says, in my Father's house are many rooms. Now we pause there for a second. That might seem, if you grew up with another translation, like the King James translation, for instance, you might say, well, that doesn't sound right. Well, I thought this was, in my father's house are many mansions. You know, Justin, your translation's messed up. Well, let's, let's look at this word for a second here. The word that's here, uh, uh, the original word means dwelling places, right? The l- word literally means dwelling places, carries the idea of a, of a, of a room or an apartment within, a, within a, one bigger house. The Father's house in this passage, it says, in my Father's house, is clearly referencing heaven. Um, so my father's house is uh, the, the father's house is a reference to heaven. So the original word uh, denotes there's an abundance of apartments or suites or something of that nature in the father's house. Andreas Kostenberger explains it this way um, to, to explain the cultural aspect. He mentions this is in Jesus day. Many dwelling units were combined to form an extended household. So this is how their houses would be set up. Um, these many dwelling units would be, would be combined, combined to form an extended household. It was customary for sons to add to their father's house once they married. So that the entire estate, the entire property, grew into a large compound centered around a communal courtyard. The image used by Jesus may also have conjured up notions of luxurious Greco-Roman villas replete with numerous terraces and buildings, situated among shady gardens with an abundance of trees and flowing water. Jesus' listeners may have been familiar with these kinds of settings from seeing the the palaces of Herod in Jerusalem or in Tiberias or Jericho. Jesus thus conveys to his followers a vision of future heavenly living that that surpasses even that enjoyed by the most exalted ruler of wealth uh, uh, or or wealthy person of the day. So what Jesus is saying is is when he says here that my father's house has many rooms, this idea, it's, it's there is plenty of rooms. There are so many rooms you can't even count them. There is plenty of room for everybody. Right? There's plenty of room for everybody in, in the Father's house. So they might think, well, I've seen a king's house before. That's a pretty big house. This is going to be better than that. The Father's house is greater, bigger, better than that. I've seen wealthy people. I've seen, I mean, again, I've seen these things. So what Jesus' uh, idea that he's conveying to his audience is, is whatever you've seen here, whatever you think is great, think God's house is better. Right? And you're going to have a part in that house. You're going to have a room in that house, a suite or an apartment or whatever you want to think of. Again, the details of what exactly makes up the room is not, is not, is not important to the text. 
So uh, it, it, what's, it's actually, it's not, it, it, to be fair, let me put it this way. Oftentimes in, in our songs and things like that, we focus on the, the wealth of the place itself that we're going to stay, right? Oh, I can't wait for my mansion. It's going to have, I was, you know, my mansion's going to have a basketball court. I'll never miss a shot. You know, I can, you can tell I still play basketball. Not at all. Um, but uh, um, again, so, but the, the idea here is not the quality of, of or, or the, the lavishness of the room itself. It's the fact that it is with the Father. D.A. Carson explains it this way. He says, the point is not the lavishness of each dwelling place, but the fact that such ample provision has been made, that there is more than enough space for all of Jesus' disciples to join in his Father's house. The focus then is on is not on the is on sorry the focus then is on the comfort to be enjoyed by believers in the presence of God. There's going to be plenty, just like we've seen in some of other of Jesus's miracles. The kingdom of God is going to be a place of plenty. Right, right now, just real quickly, I want to I want to I want to uh, pause here before before I get strung up and carried out of here and say, well, I believe it's mansions, and before you know, Justin's, I'm gonna you know or whatever you know. Whatever rebellious aspect might be coming out of your hearts right now at me, and maybe rightly so. Um, well, let me, let me uh, 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 bring this up real quick. Uh, there's a pastor named John Piper. He wrote a book called God is the Gospel. God is the Gospel. So what he explains in that book is, is not mansions or rewards that are the point of heaven. That's not the point. The point is that it will be with God. Whatever those places are like, if they're mansions, great. If they're not, great. Think about this. If in your own mind right now, if you're still saying, well, I still want there to be mansions because I really want a mansion. Right? If you're still thinking that, let me ask you this thought, this thing. Would heaven be heaven without God? You say, well, I want that mansion. I don't care if God's there or not. I want that mansion. Then you won't be there anyway, Right? You, uh, that's showing that you have idols in your heart. Something is more valuable to you than God himself. What I'm saying is that let's, let's be satisfied in that first and foremost. Whatever happens, whatever that's going to look like, whatever your room or your suite or your apartment or your mansion, whatever it looks like, we'll be satisfied because God is there. Isn't that awesome? It doesn't matter the lavishness of wherever the dwelling place may be because we'll be in the presence of God. We could all have shacks for all we care, as long as we're in the presence of God. Right, what a blessing that's going to be. Jesus then says, he says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I, not, would, uh, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? He says, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus wants us with him, and he's preparing a place for us. Right, think about that. The Son of God took on flesh and died for our sins, but that wasn't enough. He continues to serve us to this day by preparing a place for us. He is still to this day serving us. He, not only did He sacrifice Himself for us, He's still serving and, giving and, and waiting to prepare a place for us so that He can bring us back and say, Hey, I'm ready for you. I've got the place ready. Imagine how cool that's going to be. Let's just use our divine imagination for a second, right? Get to heaven and Jesus says, hey, check this out. I want to show you this room I built. I put this bathroom in here right here just for you. I thought that this would be perfect for what you look like. Look at this. I mean, that's so cool, isn't it? Like, it's custom designed homes by Jesus for you. How awesome is that? 
right? It doesn't matter what it looks like. Jesus did that for you if you're a believer today. Well, how exciting is that? That's awesome. I just, I love that. I love this passage. I love this thinking about, about, about what heaven's going to be like and, and this particular aspect as well. Jesus says in verse 4 then, he says, and you know the way where I am going. Right? He says, you know the way. Now, again, we're going to find out that Thomas wasn't so sure about this. Right? Jesus says, you know the way. You know where, you're, you know where I'm going. What does Thomas say right after this? Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Right? He says we, so I'm guessing Thomas isn't the only one that's concerned about this. The disciples may not have been as sharp as Jesus was giving them credit for. Right? We've seen that before, though. Jesus has been telling them, I'm going to my Father. I'm going to be dying. I'm not going to be with you anymore. And they keep going, well, where are you going? Why can't I go with you? Right? We saw that last week with Peter. How come I can't go with you? Oh, I'll still go with you. Like, Peter, you can't. Okay? And then he says, you know where I'm going. And they're like, we don't know where you're going. Right now, in Thomas's mind, think about this. Remember, Jesus has not died yet, right? And they're not sure what's going on right now. He says, okay, there's a way, which the word for way in Greek is, means road or way. Right? You know the road, you know the way, okay? And you know where I'm going. And he's thinking, I don't have a map, okay? I don't know where you're going, and I don't have a map to get there. What are you talking about, okay? So... Right now, Thomas is thinking very, very literal, right? He's like, I don't have, a, where is this map that you supposedly gave us that I'm missing here, right? So, so there's, you can see there's this, a level of ignorance going on here, and Jesus takes this as an opportunity to tell him, right? Now, now again, think, in, in, now in, in Thomas's mind, there is a destination that is, that is, that Jesus is going, and there is a way, a, a road that can be mapped out that that's where he needs to go to get there. What does Jesus respond to? Look at verse 6. This is, uh, many of you probably have this memorized. Look at this in verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. When Thomas was thinking, the road has got to be a, a road, right? A place on a map, a, a direction on a map, or something like that. He's thinking it very literally. Jesus says, no, no, no. What you don't get, I am the way the truth, and the life. The way is not a road. The way is a person, right? There's not a, you know, you can't say, well, okay, here's your direction to heaven. Go to this street, turn left, right? Now go to that, so you'll cross this state line, and, you know, whatever. Well, of course, heaven is in Texas, right? So you wouldn't cross the state lines. Amen. No, anyway, um, so, uh, you know, so G, again, Jesus says, no, the way is a person. It's me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the way because he is the truth and the life. D.A. Carson uh, gives this great, he has this great quote. This is, um, is a very long quote. Let me read this here, uh, explaining what this means, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. The, in, in this passage, the focus is on the way. The truth and the life show why he is the way, right? So he says, so let me read this quote here. So still, if Thomas's question in verse 6a demonstrates the way is the principal theme, it follows that truth and life enjoy a supporting role. Jesus is the way to God precisely because he is the truth of God, from 114. And the life of God, that's in chapter 1, verse 4, and chapter 3, and verse 15, and chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus is the truth because he embodies the supreme revelation of God. He himself narrates God. That was chapter 1 and verse 18. 
And it says, says, he says and does exclusively what the Father gives him to say and do. Chapter 5, verse 19 and following. Chapter 8, verse 29. Indeed, he is properly called God. John 1, 1. Right? And, verse eight, and John 1, 18. John chapter 20, verse 28. He is God's gracious self-disclosure. His word made flesh. John 1, 14. He, Jesus is the life. Chapter 1, verse 4. The one who has the life in himself, 526. The resurrection and the life, 1125. The true God and eternal life, 1 John 5.2. Only because he is the truth and the life can Jesus be the way for others to come to God. The way for his disciples to, uh, uh, to attain the many dwelling places in the Father's house. And therefore, the answer to Thomas's question... In this context, Jesus does not simply blaze a trail commanding others to take the way that he himself takes. Rather, he is the way. He's not saying, hey guys, I did it so you can come and do it too. He says, no, I am the way. Very different than any other religious system. The Buddha, for example, he got to a place and he says, hey guys, I got here, here's how you get here. Right? He didn't, the Buddha is not the way. Muhammad is not the way. He found a way that he believes got him to Allah, but he is not the way. Jesus makes a very distinct claim, a very distinguished claim. Not only is he saying that there is a way to God, he's saying that way is me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. D.A. Carson continues, he himself is the Savior, the Lamb of God, the one who so speaks that those who are in graves hear his voice and come forth. He so mediates God's truth and God's life that he is the very way to God, the one who alone can say, no one comes to the Father except through me. It is because Jesus is the truth, because he is the life, that he is the only way to God. There's only one way. We live in a pluralistic society that says there's many ways to God. Jesus says that does not work. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one way. Then verse 7, he can, he, Jesus finishes this section out. He says that knowing him, he says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus basically says, knowing me is the same thing as knowing the Father. This is about the Trinity. We'll talk about that in just a second here in the next section. Uh, Jesus will open this up a little bit more. Um, but uh, there's this is further reason why he is the only way. Because he is the unique, divine, only begotten Son of God. Unlike any other person who's ever existed, Jesus has that status. That wh that's why he can be the only way. So as we look at this section right here, again, we're, we're, we're seeing that the, our, our home with the Father is guaranteed by Jesus alone. This exclusivity is necessitated through Jesus' identity and enacted through his resurrection. Right? How do we know that it's only Jesus? He rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. No other leader said, I am the way, and then rose from the dead. Muhammad is dead. Buddha is dead. Other religious leaders are dead. Joseph Smith is dead. Jesus is alive. Right? That's why he is the only way. 
That's why he's the, re- the way, the truth, and the life. Secondly, we see in our passage here that our knowledge of the Father is revealed through Jesus alone. Uh, beginning in verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Oh, again, this is another thing very similar to Peter. It's a little bit of an arrogant statement, isn't it? Philip says, you know what? If you just show us the Father, I'll be satisfied. We're good. Now, what is Philip expecting? He's probably thinking very much like what you see in the Old Testament. He's expecting some kind of great vision of God's glory, maybe much like Isaiah had in Isaiah 6 or Ezekiel had in Ezekiel 1, or maybe like Moses had uh, when God showed him his back. He showed him his, the, the back of his glory so, and hit him in a rock in the meantime. He's thinking, show me something like that. I want to have one of those awesome experiences, right? Show me that, and then it'll be fine. It'll be enough for me. Look how Jesus responds. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can he say, how can you say, show us the Father? How could you say that? You can kind of sense a little bit of a sadness in Jesus' voice here. How do you know? How can you say that you don't know me? You you've seen me. You know me. How can you say you don't know the Father? Now this again, this 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 drives us into a Trinitarian reality. We saw in first in Colossians 1. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, right? Remember, Trinity is God is Father, Son, and Spirit, right? So part of one of what we call the economy of God, right? God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all one God, right? But each person of the Godhead, they each are individual persons. They are distinct persons within the Trinity, within the one God. And God the Father has tasks that are his and his alone, namely being the generator of the Trinity. The Trinity flows through him. He is the fountainhead of the Trinity. The Son and the Spirit get their existence from the Father. The Son, one of his specific specific jobs is to be the one who brings salvation. He is the one whose job it was to die on a cross. It wasn't like Father, Son, and Spirit drew straws. The Son got the short straws like, oh, I guess I'm going to go and die now. Right? It was his job. He had to as son. He had to. And the Holy Spirit has his jobs. And we'll learn more about that in the next coming weeks as Jesus explains the role of the Holy Spirit. One of the other roles of the Son of God is to be the image of God. That's in, again, in Colossians 1, the icon, the image, the visible aspect of God the Father. Right? So we could very much, even from this, we could very much... Uh, uh, or, or guess or, and, and, and interpret back into the Old Testament that any time the Old Testament saints saw God, who did they see? God the Son. God the Son. So you think Philip's saying, I want to see what Isaiah saw. I want to see what Moses saw. And Jesus is thinking, what are you looking for? I'm right here. Right? So what does this mean? This is, how, how can we understand this a little bit? <clears throat> what does that mean that if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father? What does that mean? Now think about this then. If I was, if, if you had never seen a human being before in your life, obviously you are human beings, right? Imagine you were an alien race and you've never seen a human being before. You say, what do human beings look like, right? Maybe a very ugly version of it, but if I stood in the middle, I'd say, this is what human beings look like. And you can say, okay, well, I, I kind of get the idea of what humans look like because I saw one human. Okay? That was not exactly the same thing, 
But Jesus, when we, if we want to know what the Father is like, you look at the one who is the image of the Father. Right? You look at the one whose job it is to reveal the Father. Jesus is the revealer of the Father. If you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father. Not necessarily in a one-to-one literal correlation, right, where you've seen the invisible God. That would be impossible, right? The Father is spirit. Those who worship him worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus Christ is the image of God. The Son of God is the image of God, the revealer of the Father. He took on flesh. God the Father did not take on flesh. The Holy Spirit did not take on flesh. So when Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because the Son of God is is the revealer of the Father. So Jesus is is giving us a glimpse into this Trinitarian reality. I love that stuff. If you're bored and you're falling asleep right now, I'm sorry. This stuff really makes me happy, right? I love the doctrine of the Trinity, and I love how God reveals those aspects in here. Um, So he says, how long have I been with you, and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Then he asked him a question. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Don't you believe that? Jesus is questioning his beliefs about him, isn't he? Philip hasn't quite figured it out yet, it seems. As many of the disciples probably didn't until Jesus rose from the dead. Then they were like, oh, that's what you meant. I got it. Right? At this point, they're still trying to put the pieces together. They're still not sure. Now, again, imagine then, put yourself, let's be a little bit nicer on the, on the disciples here, right? If me and Les were hanging out, right, and Les said, I'm the son of God, I might be like, I think we're going to have to have some problems here going on right now, right? We're going to have a couple of discussions about this. And he kept saying, hey, you know, uh, follow me. And he kept saying all the stuff that Jesus said. I'd probably be like, Les, I'm not sure. You're, you're feeling okay, you know, if you need to take a nap or something, right? It might be a little awkward, right? So imagine the disciples, this is a guy, their friend that they've been spending three years with. And this guy's saying, how have you not known that if you see me, you've seen the Father? They're probably thinking, why would I think that, right? You're my buddy, right? Why would I think that? Right? There, there's still aspects of Jesus' identity that they still have not figured out. Then continuing on. Um, excuse me, uh, continuing on, uh, or pause for a second. This is, we need to make sure, one of the reasons I want to point that out, because this verse is not a proof of a, of a doctrine, it's a false doctrine, a heresy called modalism. Modalism teaches that there is no such thing as Trinity, that God is, that God reveals himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at different times and in different ways, right? So sometimes God reveals himself as Father, sometimes God shows himself as son. Sometimes God shows himself as spirit. But they're all the same thing. There's different words for the same exact thing. That is not the case, right? This is why I wanted to point out and show that, that these, they have distinct roles, that they are distinct persons with distinct roles, right? all, even though they are one God. T.D. Jakes, for example, would be a modalist. Uh, T.D. Jakes, the famous pastor in Dallas, he says he has this famous saying, I believe in one God and his name is Jesus. He's a modalist. He said that. He does not believe in the Trinity. Unitarians who don't believe in the Trinity. Hence the reason they call themselves Unitarians as opposed to Trinitarians. Right? Unitarians don't believe in the Trinity. There's uh, Holiness Pentecostals that are mostly centered in Georgia. They don't believe in the Trinity either. 
Right? There are several groups that consider themselves and would call themselves Christians, but they don't believe in the Trinity. My friends, if God has revealed himself as Trinity, there's only one God, and he's the one who is Trinity. Right? Allah is not God because Allah is not Trinity. Right? Any of the other gods in other religions, they are not God because they are not Trinity. God has revealed himself as Trinity. So Jesus then explains there's this, there's this very closeness between him and the Father, this interfilling, we may call it. Uh, Jesus speaks the words of the Father and does the actions of the Father, and therefore he reveals the Father. This is how he explains this. Don't, don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. What Jesus is getting at here, he is saying, he is actually, in some way, he is referring back to the prophecy in Deuteronomy 18. Because a prophet like Moses will arise, he will speak my words. Jesus says, I speak the words the Father gives me to speak. I do the things that the Father gives me to do. And in that sense, in one sense, that is how we are one. Right? I do everything. Me and the Father share a will. Right? I do not share a will with any of you, right? We don't always, we don't want the same, not even my wife, right? Sometimes she wants to do one thing and I want to do another, right? Jesus and the Father, complete unity of will. They don't want anything different from one another. Essentially then, Jesus says in verse 11, basically the, this verse in verse 11, he says, uh, believe in me, uh, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Essentially what he says, if you're having a hard time understanding this, I understand. I totally understand. Right? If you're having a hard time getting this um, uh, and believing this, believe on account of the works you've seen. Right? Jesus turned water into wine. He's fed 5,000 people. He raised someone from the dead, namely Lazarus. And countless other things that Jesus has done. John tells us at the end of the book, Jesus did many other things besides this. Right? Jesus has done lots and lots, does lots and lots of miracles, and Jesus tells his disciples, if you can't believe what I'm saying, just trust the works. Right? You've seen me do what the Father has asked me to do. Trust that. Right? Just trust that. <clears throat> Essentially here, what we see as, as, as supplies to us, the Trinity is central to the Christian message. Only Jesus reveals the Father. Right? And Jesus, his job is revealer of the Father. So the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity is central to the Christian message. We cannot have Christianity outside of the doctrine of the Trinity. Otherwise, Jesus is a liar. Otherwise, we are not trusting in Jesus as, we, as he has called us to do so. Finally, we see here our service to God is because of Jesus alone. Verses 12 through 15. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, I will also do Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Jesus promises that you'll do greater works. Try to think about that. Jesus raised somebody from the dead. Does that mean that I'm going to do something greater than raise someone from the dead? Just that it means they'll do more stuff. All right, well, okay, but still... Um, so what's he talking about here? What is Jesus saying? Now certainly these verses are not saying that everyone sent it to the Father. Our message has greater clarity. Think about this. Jesus' ministry, at least 11 that are sitting in this room. Uh, there, are, there, are, there are definitely some others. 
In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches one sermon and 3,000 people get saved. And you'll be able to see more people come, come to me and worship. Isn't that cool? More people come to Christ than Jesus ever did in his own lifetime, in his own earthly life. In a respectful sense. Please don't misunderstand me. It's all because of Jesus, right? Before these works going to be accomplished, it says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. He's giving us magic words. He's saying that the power of the church, the power of the gospel, Christ and our church, we need to be praying people. If we want to see our community come to Christ, we need to be praying people. Jesus will not be able to do a greater work in our church unless we are praying people. Whatever you ask of me, I will do it. The disciples' fruitful conduct is the product of their prayers, prayers offered in Jesus' name. Even in his own self-exaltation, right? even in his own exaltation, the fact that he is uh, uh, crucified and raised from the dead, he says this, whatever, I will do, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do in verse 13, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Jesus' purpose has not changed. Even in his own exaltation by, by raising, rise, raising from the dead, he still says my purpose hasn't changed. When I go back to the Father, my goal is going to be to bring glory to the Father. And Jesus wants to bring glory to the Father through us. What a blessing that is. What an encouragement. I mean, imagine you're the disciples, you're really stressed out, freaking out, and Jesus says, hey guys, you know what? You have a sure place in heaven because, because of me. And I know it's true life. Guys, you've seen the Father because you've seen me. Right? Because I'm the revealer of the Father. He says, guys, you're going to do more than I've ever done because I'll be with my Father and I'll be bringing him glory through you. That's it. close out, we've seen that there's only one way to heaven, that's through Jesus. Guys, Jesus died on the cross for your sin. Jesus came to this earth because of our sin. In Genesis chapter, in, in, in the beginning of Genesis, it says, uh, God created man and woman, gave them one rule, don't eat of the tree in the middle of the garden. And instead of obeying that command, they said, you know what? I want to be God. I don't want to obey God's rules. I want to be God, and I want to make the rules. They took of that fruit, deceived by a serpent. They took of that fruit, disobeyed God, and it threw the world into chaos. If you look around you for just a little bit, you'll see this world is not a pretty picture. Right? I don't care how much television says, people are basically good. I don't see it. Right? We've been watching some prison shows on Netflix. There's not really a whole lot of good people. Right? There's a pretty messed up stuff that goes on in this world. It's a broken world. It's because of our sin. Not because of somebody else's. It's our, every single one of us, do things that break God's law. And that brings brokenness. Jesus came to this earth because and he needed to die for our sins. And he could not die as, as his divine self. He had to take on humanity, add to his divinity, humanity, die, to die on the cross and raise from the dead. And when he raised from the dead, 
sin and Satan and death, and that you might be free. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you've never believed in Jesus Christ for your salvation, you've never put your trust in that sacrifice, in that resurrection, you never trusted in that, I'm telling you today there's only one way to the Father, and it's through Jesus Christ, and he offers it freely today. <clears throat> maybe you're here, maybe you've been visiting for a while, and you say, you know what, I need to find a church home. Guys, this is going to be a church where we're going to look at scripture, we're going to seek to obey it, we're going to encourage one another. If this is a place God may be calling you to be your church home, be a place to serve and to bring glory to the Father through serving here, we'd love for you to have that opportunity. In just a second, we'll be having an invitation. If you don't know Jesus or if you'd like to join our church, uh, please see me at the front. We can talk to you about that. Uh, or, or you can see me after the service. Um, catch me at lunch, something like that. We'd love to chat with you about that and pray for you. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this opportunity we have.